Okay, that's just creepy, Dave. Is it the eyeball picture? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's really scary. <laughs> the, completely by accident, the the eyeball is perfectly centered so that when people are calling me or I'm ringing back to them, the Ajax spinner goes right around the pupil. <laughs> completely by accident, <laughs> huh? <laughs> that's awesome. That makes it okay. Now I'm okay with it. Yep. Because <laughs> that's not more creepy, right? Exactly. It's gone past the creepy level into, like, awesome level, so... <laughs> I can die happy. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support? High performance? All backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. This episode is sponsored by Codeship.io. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test passed? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied into a nice continuous integration system? That's Codeship. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically for fuss-free continuous delivery. Check them out at Codeship.io. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues Podcast. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery service that goes far beyond letting you do continuous deployment. Snap's first-class support for deployment pipelines lets you push any healthy build to multiple environments automatically and on-demand. This means with Snap, you can deploy your staging environment today, verify it works, and later deploy the exact same build to production. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many, many more. You can also use Snap to push your gems to RubyGems. Best of all, setting up your build is simple and intuitive. Try Snap free for 30 days. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 167 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello, hello. Saranyat Barak. Hey, everybody. David Brady. It has been zero days since the last Diet Coke incident. I'm Charles <laughs> Maxwood from devchat.tv, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about speaking at conferences. Didn't we already do this show? Yeah, it was episode 64. 64, but we talked about it like as a bunch of crank, cranky old neckbeards, and now we're going to be mellow old neckbeards? I think we, at that time, had varied experience speaking, but for the most part, we had all done it several times. Yeah. And so I think the conversation is going to be a little different, mainly because I think Saran's experience has been different. She pointed this out before the show, so I know it yeah. has been. And the other thing is, is that it's been two years since we've talked about it. Yeah. So, you know, some things have changed. I think the Ruby community has changed. I think okay. there are a lot of things that, you know, we need to think about and be aware of that we really weren't thinking about 
two years ago. So even there, I think there's plenty to cover that isn't, you know, specifically the same as what we were talking about two years ago. Yeah, I, in the pre-show, for the listener's benefit, a big reason we're redoing this is because Saran had a whole bunch of great questions and really good answers. So I'm tempted to just turn control of the show over to her. Oh my goodness, that's so much responsibility. Yeah, I, I, I didn't want to tell you in advance that we were going to do that because I wanted to see how you'd react. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is how I'm reacting. It's going to be great. Awesome. Uh, yeah, uh, so I guess the biggest thing is, what do you talk about? That's kind of the hardest thing. And when I when I did my uh, my CFP for RailsConf, and I did it on, on reading code. I did that one because that was literally the only idea I had. And so I kind of wanted to, to have a conversation on what do you base your talks on? I've heard people say that they base it on, you know, what they've been doing, what they find interesting. But I've also heard a lot of speakers tell me that they do it on something they actually don't know anything about. And they use the talk and the CFP as an opportunity to explore something that they don't really know about, which kind of makes you feel a little cheated as a, as a, you know, as a listener. But yeah, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I like, for starters, you mentioned you, you spoke about the only thing you could think of. I don't think that's a bad thing. If you can think of something to talk about, I think you're done. I, I don't think you have to say, well, I could talk about these 27 things, but I'm going to, well, unless you're James Edward Gray. And then you, but you say, I'm going to talk about 10 things. And then you show up and talk about like 39, <laughs> but that's kind of his shtick. So, you know, I don't know. I've, I've written talk proposals on both. It seems like some of them get accepted and some don't, and I'm not sure even still exactly why. I think it depends on what the conference is looking for. Yeah. But really, it's just, you know, anything that you're interested in talking to other people about, because inevitably you're going to give that talk and then people are going to want to talk to you about it. Saran, are you asking specifically if it's cool to submit multiple CFPs or multiple proposals? Um, no, no, I think that for the most part, I've, I've found that that is okay, and I think a lot of people do that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's more of just what do you talk about and how do you decide? Like when I decided to do the one on, on reading code, I was comfortable submitting it because it was something that I had actually done. It's something that I did regularly, but also because I really don't like talks that are very theoretical and I don't like talks that are kind of don't really have context and don't tell a story. And I wanted to do something that was very practical that you could you know, listen to and leave and say, I'm going to do this one thing differently and I know exactly how to do it and I know how to start. And I wanted to be very, very practical. And so mm-hmm. it kind of worked out the idea I had also fulfilled those other things that I just wanted every talk that I, I give to be. Yeah. And, and I'm kind of curious what kinds of things that you guys consider and then what you think about when you're putting a talk together. I definitely look at, I mean, basically what you were just saying, uh, you know, what kind of talk would I want to sit through? Mm-hmm. That doesn't always give me a lot of help topic wise, but. I guess it, it does at least help with sort of the style of talk that I want to give because there are a lot of options out there for what style of talk you can give. And, and sometimes I'll just, I'll think for a while, you know, what are the kinds of talks that I've enjoyed sitting through versus the kinds of talks where I got bored and mm-hmm. surfed the internet? That gives me some guidance. Yeah. That can mean different things. Like, yeah, absolutely passion. Like there can be, it can be like, okay, I want to hear something that somebody cares a lot about. Um, but then on the other hand, I've also enjoyed talks where I was just entertained. And it's like a, t- a talk that I did recently. It was more aimed towards like, I know I like some t- talks that are about silly things that entertain me. And, and I, so I did a talk that was kind of more in, in that vein. Mm-hmm. Also keep in mind that conferences, they stack out their schedule and they consider things like brain fatigue and, okay, this is the morning after the drink up. So let's not hurt the people that are hungover. And right. And so, I mean, they're looking for, you know, let's put in a fluffy, fun talk and, you know, let's 
right before lunch on the first day, let's that's where we're going to put the guy who wants to decompile the the live Ruby running process and patch it in memory, <laughs> you know, in assembly. Yeah. That actually happened at, at Mountain West RubyConf a few years ago, and, and he, he said, so let's open this up and decompile, and he, he dumped a page of PowerPC assembly instructions, and everyone went, uh, and he says, it's just assembly code, we're fine. <laughs> and then he and then he proceeded to monkey patch the Ruby binaries. It was awesome. That talk would not have flown at six p.m. on a Friday, but it did fine at eleven a.m. on 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 Thursday, the first day of the conference. But did he have a picture of a cat in it? <laughs> he was more in danger of the wall of text. I've been trying to get Gray Page to catch on, and it just hasn't caught on. In the Ruby community, we call it wall of text, and that's when you put up a slide that nobody can read. It's just, it just, from the back of the room, it just looks like a, a gray smear, right? You can't read anything on the page. And yep. he was, he was more in danger of wall of text than, than I don't think it was five years ago. I don't quote me on this, but I want to say he didn't have a single picture. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh. So are there guidelines then for figuring out what a particular conference is looking for? Email the, Organizers? I, is that taboo? I would like to say I have a clever trick for this, but it didn't work. Uh, Boulder did a... It's the one that sounds like Mountain West Ruby Conf, but it's not Mountain West Ruby Conf. And I can't remember. I'm sorry, guys in Boulder. You'll never have me over to speak ever now. Great. Because um, I can't remember the name of you. But it's, it's the Ruby Conference in Boulder, and it's great, and it's a lot like Mountain West. It's highly technical, and you know they're Rocky looking for... Rocky Mountain Ruby, thank you. I should have remembered um, that because I've spoken at it. <laughs> yes. And I did. I contacted the organizers and I said, what are you interested in? And they're like, you know what? We want things from all across the board. So I submitted three different proposals and they ranged from very technical to all the way up to very fluffy. No takers. They wrote back and said, yeah, you just weren't what we lo- were looking for. <laughs> So maybe it's a personal thing. Maybe I never had a chance. I don't know. Well, the other thing is, is the way that they select the talks has changed. Because before I know yeah. I've talked to several organizers and they'd, they look over the list of people who submitted and they look over the list of the topics that they submitted and they just kind of handpick them. Sometimes, you know, they'd, they'd have like a board or a group of people who would vote on them. But then it was still like full information. And with the latest rounds of people trying to be more fair and open to minorities, they've mm-hmm. actually done more voting where it's just the topics and submissions. And then uh, they move into, okay, now we can see who the top ones are and pick from those. And so they give unknowns and minorities, a, I guess, a fairer chance of making it because they're not selecting mm-hmm. based on names of submissions. Yep. That's the thing that's changed in the past couple of years. Ever since I think Brit Ruby was the pro- poster child for selection bias, and we all collectively learned a lesson from that. And a lot of conferences now they're they're selecting the CFPs double blinded or single blinded. Anyway, they select they select blind. You don't know who wrote the proposal. Yep. Something that might be use, uh, worth mentioning here is Noel Rappin has an article he wrote uh, this spring called "What I Learned from Reading 429 Conference Proposals," uh, which Ooh. just goes over some of his experiences uh, selecting for RailsConf and uh, talks about what makes for a good conference proposal. Yeah, I remember reading that. That was a really good post. So, Saran, you you picked code reading uh, mm-hmm. as your topic, right? And you did that talk. How do you feel about it? I have mixed feelings about it. Um, so that was 
I think that was the first time I was like on a stage since maybe high school. And so it was, it was really fun and awesome to get to like present and talk to a crowd of people. And, and that just was just a great experience. And I just really enjoyed that aspect of it. I was really, really happy with and kind of surprised by how well it connected with people. Um, I got a lot of really good feedback on Twitter and an email and in person. Um, so I'm glad that the thing that I wanted to happen totally happened and then some. But the thing that, um, that kind of bothers me now is I feel like I am like the co now, um, where everyone's like, what gems should I use and what library should I read? And, uh, you know, how do I do this too? And, uh, and you know, now when I, I'm getting invited to speak at places and they all want me to talk about that topic. Um, and it's really not, you know, the topic that I'm necessarily most passionate about. It was just the one that I knew I could, I could speak about and in a way that would be helpful and informative. So I kind of feel more tied to the topic than to be and that I expect to be. And that's kind of the downside of it, if that makes sense. That rings true. I can understand that. I think Katrina went through this too, where she did the therapeutic refactoring and then people wanted her to come and talk about just that a lot, you know, and just things like that, where she kind of became an instant expert on the one topic and people kind of miss some important things about who you are and what else you have to offer. Yeah. You get tight. You can get typecast. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if, if there's a good judo move against that. Like if somebody says, hey, would you come speak about this thing that you always speak about? If you could say, you know, I'd be happy to, but I'm really passionate about this other topic. Could I come speak about that instead? And kind of spring forward from it instead of feeling like you're trying to back out of the niche that you're you're in, if that makes sense. Yeah, see, the thing is, I have to go find other topics now. (laughs) (laughs) That's the trick. And it can be, it can be attractive just sort of like sticking with what you know, but I think it's really important to, to branch out. And it's really hard to not do it again because I already have the cartoons for it, which took kind of a while and I already have the slides for it. So it's really easy to just do that one thing. Time to draw new cartoons. Yeah, exactly. But, um, I think that the, the other interesting part about RailsConf and speaking in general, just for me at least, is kind of the obligation. Uh, I feel very, very obligated as a woman, as a person of color, as an immigrant, as a, you know, not computer science degree person. I feel very obligated to, like, represent a whole group of people. And I feel like I have to tweet a lot, and I have to blog a lot, and I have to speak a lot. And if I'm invited to anything, I'm probably gonna do it whether or not I think it's going to be fun or enjoyable because I feel like I have to be the voice. And it, it only gets further enforced because, you know, I have a ton of, of people, honestly, uh, mostly black women coming to me and saying, like, it's so refreshing to, you know, to see you and to see what you're doing because, you know, there just aren't people that look like us. And it's like an awesome feeling, but it also creates all this other pressure to represent other people. That's been kind of interesting to deal with. That doesn't happen to me. <laughs> I was about to say, no. I, I really don't have any perspective on this at all. <laughs> I mean, you know, I show up to the conference, I look like everybody else. And the other interesting thing is, is that I think it shapes my worldview of the minority groups that are participating. Cause, you know, sometimes I notice and sometimes I don't. I mean, with you being on the last several episodes of the podcast, at this point, I don't think about you in those categories. I just think about you as Saran because you're there. And so, I you, know, you know, I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't have anything to offer there because I just, it's not something that affects my worldview very much. And that's really interesting because that's the other thing. I don't know what people see, right? Like, I know what I see. I know that, you know, when I walk into any room, the first thing I do is I count the number of women and I count the number of minorities, literally. And I'm almost always disappointed. So I know it's, you know, very visible and very obvious to me, 
which leads me to assume that everyone else can see what I see, but that's probably not true. And I'd love to hear like the rest of the panel's kind of ideas on like, do you notice those things? Is that something that stands out to you? We had a discussion, what, a year, maybe a little longer ago, where we talked about privilege. We've, we've talked about it a few times on the show. And yeah, I mean, for the most part, like I said, it's not something that I really think about. And so it's not something that I pay attention to unless somebody kind of puts it in my face and says, hey, there's this thing that you should be, you know, thinking about. And it's like, yes, you know, I, I can accept that and I want to support the movement there. But at the same time, since it's not something that I'm involved in a lot, it's like, okay, now what do I do? Yeah. It's the trap of privilege guilt, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I've, I've got all this ability and power. What do I do with it? I don't feel like I'm doing enough with it. I don't know if this is the right answer, but I kind of feel like one of the best uses of surplus privilege is to find invisible doors and unlock them for people. And the way I've been trying to apply that personally is, you know, things like conference talks, trying to get people to propose, trying to convince people with imposter syndrome that, yeah, you should totally give a talk. Uh, you should totally run for president of the, of your club. What are you talking about? I just joined a month ago, you know, that kind of thing. And anybody who feels that they can't try to kind of, you know, by, by action and gesture indicate that, no, this, this road is open to you. Try to go that way. I think that's exactly what you're talking about there, Saran, is just that you being who you are and fitting the categories that you fit by going out and doing this, you are opening some of those doors. Yeah, I don't think so. One uh, um, blog post that months ago was by Anil Dash, who has, I think, like 100,000 followers on Twitter. And he went through um, a, a little experiment that he did for the past year that he didn't tell anybody about until the experiment was kind of over, where he decided that he was really interested in promoting women and women in tech, and that he decided that the only people he was going to retweet for the next year was only going to be women. And he saw that as his personal way of amplifying voices that he felt weren't you know, being amplified very much. And I really love that idea. And and it made me very aware of who it is that I amplify myself. So if mm-hmm. I decide that, you know, it's important to me to have more minorities or more people who are, you know, low income or immigrants or whatever, you know, group of people that I feel are at a disadvantage. If I decide that those are the people that I really want to promote, then some of the easiest ways to do that are to just retweet them or to retweet their blog post or to reach out to them and to connect. And, you know, because I've made, honestly, not even that big of an effort because, you know, it's kind of just part of who I am of doing those things. It's really interesting because if you look at my followers and the people that I follow, it's really diverse. And I actually know a lot of female programmers and I know a lot of programmers of color. And so, you know, I think that it really starts with developing and building your own network and then paying a lot of attention to who it is that you promote in the smallest of ways, just as much as it is, you know, getting someone to actually speak. There's a lot of really small ways to do it as well. Yeah, I think the other thing that is interesting here is that, uh, and it kind of harks back to your answer or your question a little bit as far as should I be doing this and how much should I be doing it and things like that. I think there's something to be said for going outside of your comfort zone to make some of this happen and to promote some of this important work. But at the same time, I also, you know, I want it to be genuine and I want it to be, you know, I don't want you to feel like you're there because you're obligated to speak at yet another conference. I want you to be there because you genuinely want to be there and sharing your knowledge in that way. And so if you're a little uncomfortable, then I'm, you know, I I think you're okay. And if you just don't feel like you can and you feel that sense of obligation, then maybe it it's something that you, you know, should really think about whether or not you should go. 
Yeah, you know, what's interesting about that is exploring where that discomfort comes from, right? <clears throat> so if it comes from the fact that, you know, you're self-conscious because you're not an experienced speaker, then there's definitely, you know, speaking classes and seminars and there's a lot of workshops, especially for tech talks, that you can look into to be a better speaker. If the reason why you're uncomfortable is because you just don't have the, um, you know, the technical background and experience, I think that that's not necessarily a very good reason, um, as I found, because a lot of you know, newbies have interesting perspectives as well. So I think it's, you know, it's less about do you feel comfortable and not, but more of why do you feel uncomfortable and what are things that we can do to, um, to make it better. Um, you know, for me, when I, you know, when I look at CFPs, um, you know, and I look at who else is speaking and I see, you know, a few women, that makes me feel instantly more comfortable. If I look at, you know, CFPs and I look at the language especially and they say things like, we're willing to, you know, coach or we encourage first-time speakers, that makes me feel comfortable. And there's a lot of just really small things that you can do to decrease that discomfort. Because I really don't think that being uncomfortable with something is a very good reason not to do it. But if you understand where that discomfort comes from, there's ways to, to tackle that. That's a fantastic point about the language of CFPs. Especially just, you know, even having a code of conduct is huge. You know, if you don't have a code of conduct, I'm, I'm a little worried. And and it's funny because I've, I've heard people say that, oh, if I put up a code of conduct, it looks like my conference has an issue, which I think is just a ridiculous, ridiculous argument to not. Because it to me, it says you understand that there are issues that need to be addressed in this community and you are demonstrating that you take it seriously. Like, that's what that says. And so even, you know, just having something up as simple as that really goes a long way. Thankfully, uh, it, it does look like a lot of conferences are taking that to heart at, at this point. Yeah, and I, I'm also encouraged that they're inviting you to come speak because, you know, you really do have a lot to say and share. And, you know, just seeing the way that you express your thoughts is something that I honestly wish I was better at. And I think a lot of people benefit from. So, Well, if you ever want a cartooning lesson, we can definitely set that up. I'll be happy to show you how to draw. <laughs> that would be an awesome talk, actually. I, I was going to say, I, I may just take you up on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's funny is um, I gave a I gave a talk uh, last night actually about drawing and it was called um, drawing Adam's face and it's funny because he's going to hear this and he's going to be so embarrassed and so uh, Adam is Adam Enbar who's the founder or one of the founders of the Flatiron School and for my application I drew him a picture or I drew a picture you know telling my story and one of the frames was of him yelling you got to breathe code can you breathe code which is not a direct quote but it's pretty close and so I gave, gave a talk uh, last night at Manhattan JS about um, what it was like to draw his face and draw his cartoon. And I showed all the different iterations that I had to go through to finally end up at the one that, that worked and all the different kind of ways to do that. It was a lot of fun. It was, it was a lot of fun. And I got to kind of make fun of him while he was in the room, which is awesome. <laughs> I want to say that with regard to feeling a sense of responsibility, obviously I don't experience it in the same way that you do, but I think it's true that if you are in the public eye in any capacity, you're going to start feeling pressure of some kind, regardless. Yeah, I think to that degree, I've felt that to some degree, you know, where people email me or text me or tweet at me and say, hey, are you going to this conference? Or are you speaking at this conference? But yeah, I don't think it's quite the same as what Saron is talking about. Yeah, I know. That's, um, that's interesting because for different reasons, I, I feel, I feel the same way about going to, I feel really bad because I don't, I don't go to a lot of, um, like meetups and things in New York that are, you know, always happening with code. And I feel like I'm supposed to, like, I feel like once that, you know, I've given that one talk and given a couple others, I'm always kind of supposed to be in the know on conferences and talks in general. And I'm really not. Usually I'm, I'm busy coding <laughs> and I feel kind of bad about that. <laughs> I feel like I'm expected to top the confident code talk all the time. 
Oh, that's an oh. interesting thing to talk about where you have a popular hit talk. Do you feel yeah, pressure? That, yeah, and, and that's that's what I mean by that. It's it's just that there's pressure to to well, to continue being what people see you as. If you've delighted people once, there's a sense of pressure to continue delighting people. Yeah. That kind of thing. Uh or to delight them even more than the last time. Because nobody likes, you know, at least internally the voice is nobody likes someone who just coasts. Who does something cool and then coasts. Right. So you gotta do better. Right. But on the other hand, you've got that sense of you're waiting for people in the audience to say, you know, I like Avdi's stuff ever since he changed his sound and went acoustic, but this new experimental stuff is just too out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, you know, I, I want to ask you, um, ask all of you, do you feel obligated to give very technical talks versus more fluffier pieces? Like, how do you kind of balance the technical degree of, of your talks? I very much don't. Which might explain why nobody's accepting my, my proposals. <laughs> um, no, the, so the thing for me is when I first got into Ruby, I wanted to give a lot of technical talks, like explaining, here's what the enumerable module does and all the nooks and crannies that you can do, or here's what this library does, or here's what this other thing does. And now that, okay, now that I'm a crotchety old neckbeard in Ruby, the last two talks I've been, I've given were kind of last minute they were at Mount Western Reconf and I just, I happened to be rooming with one of the organizers when a speaker canceled and he's like, guess what, dude, you're, you're speaking tomorrow. And I'm like, Oh, crud. Okay. And so <laughs> I'd stay up, I'd stay up until four in the morning writing a talk about what I was really passionate about at that moment. And it would invariably be like an aspect of the programming life rather than any specific technology. So like the last two or three talks that I've given have been on brain hacking. And about like very squishy stuff and, you know, like left brain, right brain stuff and that kind of thing. And the last one I gave was actually in theory, it was about refactoring. But at the end of the talk, it was basically about being inclusive and being accepting of other people around you that have different ideas and welcoming different paradigms. Even though, even though you look at a weird paradigm and you know, it's just wrong, it takes some time to sit with that paradigm. You know, it's, it's. You know, maybe it's got two or three fundamental assumptions that you have to accept before it makes sense. But once you do, it's a very, very valuable. That's I almost awesome. feel the- I love that. I love that you went from refactoring to inclusive. That that just sounds very poetic. I almost feel the opposite from from pressure to be technical because for me, from the background I'm coming from, doing a tech talk is well, the the nasty voice in my set my head says it's basically a cop out. <laughs> I knew you were gonna say um. that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I can. Uh, at least as far as Ruby goes, there are a lot of things that I know at this point, and certainly like doing Ruby Tapas helps a lot with that as well. And uh, you know, so there's stuff that I can talk about technically, but I always there's that voice in my head that says, "Okay, yeah, you can talk about this stuff until the end of time, but how are you actually changing the world with this talk?" So for me, there's that my internal pressure is I feel like I ought to be saying something bigger. Oh, what would bigger look like? I can say from like, okay, so the, the stabs that I've made at it are like, uh, I spent a year talking more about pair programming, like, like trying to get people to diversely pair program with each other on, you know, things that weren't just like the project they were working on. And that was about encouraging people to expand their horizons. And so that's, I guess that's like a bigger thing. That's not really a technical thing. That's, I sort of disguised as, as a technical talk, but it was more about that. So that's, that's the kind of thing. It's those, you know, those big ideas. And, and that's where I feel like, you know, I, I fall short and I wish I could do better. 
I think the other thing, at least in my mind, is that so the technical aspects of programming are more or less, especially like if you're if you get into like a language like Ruby or something like that, you know, they're they're pretty well set, you know, because you're talking about the capability of the language or the capability of a library and and what it does and how it can be used. But the really interesting parts of programming are how you organize your code. Um, how you solve problems, you know, how you participate in the community, how you learn and things like that. And so, and those, a lot of those are more fluffy, more gooey, but they really get to the heart of what programming is and what being a programmer is. And so I think there is definitely a use for exposing people to those technical topics, but I tend to agree that it, it's much less well-defined and much more interesting to have somebody talk about the way that they solve these other problems. Huh. I, I like that because to me, the the bigger problems and the, you know, potentially world changing problems are the ones that are more interesting to listen to. But I feel obligated. I guess my, my internal voice would tell me that not doing a technical talk and one that involves, you know, like live coding or something hardcore like that is a cop out for me because I feel like that's the scarier, more intimidating thing than talking more about high level concepts and ideas and like people. So it's interesting because I, I did a little bit of searching on, you know, what makes a good talk. And I, I came across a couple times, um, people saying that having like a lot of code and showing your code is a lot easier and talking more about concepts and ideas, which I never ever would have thought that that would be the case. I think it also speaks a little bit to how long you've been a programmer, you know, where I think at least when I was uh, newer at programming, newer at Ruby, I thought there was a whole lot more out there that I didn't know than I think there actually was. And so I underestimated my capability. So by doing that, you do find the technical topics uh, more intimidating because you look at it and you, you know that there are things that other people know more about than you do. And so why would I want to talk about those things? Where in reality, mm-hmm. what we really want to know is what your experience is and mm-hmm. how it affects me and how we can make your experience better. And th- those are kind of the major things that come away from talks, especially talks by people who haven't been programming for 10 zillion years. So, Ron, can I ask you kind of a tough question on this topic? Yes, but I cannot promise an answer. You're fairly new to programming and you feel a pressure to give technical talks. I want to know as delicately and kindly as possible, with as much respect for you as possible, is it your imposter syndrome speaking that if you stand up and don't give a technically beefy talk that you're afraid that I'm going to sit back and go, she doesn't know how to program, so she's talking fluffy stuff? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Totally. Okay, okay. Yeah, and, and you know, and it's, it's particularly strange for me because, you know, at work, I work with someone who also graduated from the Flatiron School and we're pretty much at the same level. So I really don't know how good I am or am not. I have no sense of my own skills because I'm comparing it to someone who knows pretty much what I do. So kind of going out into the real world and telling you what I know technically is just very, that would be very, very uncomfortable because I have no sense of it um, myself. I mean, I like to think that if I if I did do a highly technical talk, I would make sure to be, you know, super prepared and have a lot of people look at it and give me feedback and, you know, kind of prevent that opportunity from happening. But yeah, that has a lot to do with it that, you know, cartoons are awesome because people love them and, you know, they get really excited about it. And it's, 
it's it's really fun. And I think that that differentiates me and my style from a lot of other people's. And it's a really great excuse to not do something super technical where imposter syndrome definitely kicks in. Mm-hmm. So I have a, a response to that and then a, a follow-on question, and I will keep the response short because you are kicking butt in this discussion, and I want you to keep <laughs> keep keep running with the ball. Your imposter syndrome is wrong. I would love to hear you talk about drawing or to hear you talk about life at the Flatiron School or life at, you know, whatever, and to come at some of these softer topics the way that you know, we would expect our luminaries to approach, you know, like DHH or Uncle Bob or whatever to talk about a broad spectrum, you know, aspect topic. I would love to hear those from somebody who's new. So having said that, I realized that my own imposter syndrome has fantastic antibodies to statements like that. You know, that yeah, 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 I appreciate you saying that. But so the follow on <laughs> question is, how do you think you can and, and I'm asking this because there are other newbies going, yeah, Dave says that he'd like to hear me talk about this, but not really. So maybe they'll listen to you because you're actually more of an expert on this. How do you get past that? Yeah, I think that for me, it's been really important to have other people who get it, um, which is why, you know, I started the, the Code Newbie chat um, on Wednesday nights at, at 9 p.m. Eastern time, um, specifically to find other people who are around the same place and we can kind of talk about our problems and our issues and our wins and our losses together. And actually we had, I think it was last week, we had a chat and the theme was imposter syndrome. And we talked about, and it was really interesting to me because I'm very familiar with the concept and um, I heard about it, I think a couple of years ago for the first time, but a lot of the code newbies had never heard of it as a term. Like they didn't know that it was a thing that people dealt with. They thought it was just them kind of on their own, you know, feeling like they didn't belong and, you know, they were kind of alone in that. And so it was really, really great to hear people say, oh, my God, I feel that way all the time. And I've been, you know, and someone else saying, yeah, me too. And I've been coding for 10 years. And just mm-hmm. knowing that everyone else is going through it, regardless of how experienced they are, I've seen to be very helpful to other people. And it's been really, really helpful to me. I think the other thing that uh, I'm starting to do more and I wish I'd done sooner was to tell other people the things that you want. And so when I started at, at the New York Tech Meetup, my goal was to do at least one talk before I left. And this, you know, fellowship is seven months long. So, you know, within seven months, I was going to do at least one talk. And whether or not it made me comfortable, whether or not I wanted to, I was going to do it because I knew that it would be good for me and it would be great for my career. And it's something that I just had to do. And once I decided that and I started telling people about it, opportunities started coming to me where people said, hey, I know so-and-so is looking for a speaker for this thing. Would you be interested in that? And so I feel like the more open I was about my dreams and my goals, the more willing other people were to tell me and to help me get there. And then it was like a team effort to, you know, to, to kind of do the thing that I was always afraid of. And it made mm-hmm. it feel a lot less scary. So, yeah. That's awesome. I think you've got a really great tip there about talking about what you want because whether you've been coding for three months or 30 years, there's always another level that you want to get to. And so if you stand up and say, I'm here and I want to get there, that's going to resonate with everybody at every experience level in the audience. Yes, exactly. And that's the interesting thing is before programming, I was you know in the startup world and the goal was always to prove to everyone else that you already had everything figured out. You know, you're always pitching, you're always, mm-hmm. selling, always making yourself bigger than, than what you are. And it's, you're not supposed to tell people what you're looking for because then it means you don't, you don't already have it. 
And so I had to kind of change my mindset to be, it's okay to admit that you don't understand these things. And it's okay to talk about your failures because that shows that at least you're trying and you're improving and you're getting there. And I found that that has been just way more helpful in both growing as a person, growing as a programmer, but also just meeting new people and connecting with people when I'm more honest about what I know, what I don't know, and what I want to know. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I will say that I've found it's been easier to make admissions like that. You know, it's it's been easier to make admissions about what I don't know and to say things like, gosh, I'm a terrible programmer. I don't know. As I've gotten older, as I've gotten, I guess, more successful. And and that's one of those great ironies, I think, of of life is that it's easier to admit you don't know things when a lot of people think that you know things. (laughs) Um, Yes. I guess the only reason I'm noting this is that I'm just noting it because it's tough when you're newer. You know, it felt like there was, when I was sort of newer to the game, when I hadn't, didn't feel like I, you know, proved myself to people, I felt so much more pressure to appear knowledgeable. Yeah. You know, one thing that, that I found that helps me out in that too is talking about all the things that I've tried and all the ways that they haven't worked. Because then it's, you know, me showing that I don't necessarily know the right way, but I understand the process and I've tried a bunch of other things. And, when I started doing that, um, I found that people really appreciate it and people really appreciate the effort and the curiosity and they kind of forgive, sometimes don't even notice, um, that I don't actually have the right answer. I just have 10 like wrong answers. And th- those have led to some really interesting conversations. And before you know it, you know, a lot of times we're like troubleshooting together, we're figuring out together and it becomes a really interesting conversation. People are a lot nicer and more understanding than, than I think I thought that they would be <laughs> at the beginning of all this. That's an amazing point. I mean, when you approach it from that direction, you're kind of allying people with you rather than confronting them, I yeah. guess. Yes, exactly. I want to talk about where ideas come from for talks. Saran, what was the last time that an idea popped into your head? You were just like, like suddenly, hey, I could do a talk about that. Um, I don't know if that's ever happened. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, I think that there are things that, well, so, so I guess, the, the drawing one was something that I I wanted to do, and I wanted to do something on drawing and cartooning because I'd gotten just a lot of really positive feedback from it. And then the person who invited me actually said, can you draw, talk about drawing? And I was like, great, I've wanted to do that. And there are, you know, kind of other topics that I think are just interesting to me, but I, I don't know that they'd be interesting to other people. And I guess I feel like if it's not, if I don't know or have proof that it would be interesting to other people, then I don't think I'd consider it for a talk which is probably not good. But So here's a question. What do you find yourself getting really like animatedly engaged in conversation about? I think the two things that I get really excited about are process and the big picture of a product. And so, you know, I didn't realize how obsessed I was over process until, um, you know, we're building out this app and we're thinking through how do we do that? And, you know, how did we do it well and, and not so well? And what are our goals and what are our metrics and kind of understanding just, you know, how to do things and that the how is just as important, if not uh, more than the the what. And so I get really, really excited about hearing other people's workflows and how they make decisions and what they did right and how they know that it was right. And just the how I think is just absolutely fascinating. I think the other thing is just the product as a whole. I did not appreciate how complex the whole product development cycle was until I did it. Um, and there's just so many pieces and, and ideas and so many, so many people's opinions you have to think about. And there's just so much. And I'm really, really interested in learning more about and, and hearing people talk about 
how they got from this idea in my head to this working product and how do they know that was going to be the right product, if that makes sense. So my next question for you is when can we expect a talk on that? Oh man, you totally tricked me. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. That was very good. I'm going to do that to other people from now on. That's that's a great great technique. (laughs) Um, That's serious. I mean, that's, that's where it comes from, right? It's, it's that thing that you find yourself talking about and getting really excited about. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess you're right. I guess it just comes back to a lot of, like the two things that I talked about, I have a lot more questions about them than I do have answers. And I still have this feeling that if you're speaking, you should have answers. I disagree so much. If you're excited about something and you are full of questions about it, you should totally give a talk about it. Because in the three months coming up to that conference, you're going to have to find out answers to a bunch of that stuff. And you're going to end up with questions that you haven't answered. And that excites me. I want to, I, I want to hear that talk. I totally do. The other thing that I want to throw on top of this is that even if you don't get all the answers before you give the talk, what's going to happen is you're going to go in, you're going to give the talk. People are going to come up afterward and talk to you about it. You're going to wind up going to lunch with some of them and you are going to have this just awesome conversation where you really do explore the edges of what you talked about. And so if it's something that you're passionate about, one of the best ways to learn about it like Dave said, is to give the talk about it because you'll explore it as you lead up to it, and then you'll have those conversations afterward. It also yeah. gives you a great excuse to uh, pick the brains of people that you might otherwise have felt intimidated about about talking yeah. to. I mean, if you're yes. preparing for a talk like that, and you're like, wow, I don't know anything about this topic, you can. it's easier than, I think, to say, to write an email to someone that you really respect and say, look, I'm, you know, here's who I am. I'm supposed to be doing this talk on this topic, and I would really love to have your answers to these questions. And I've done that and gotten some amazing feedback from people in the past for talks that I've done, and it really helped. There's a specific brain hack that I'd like to throw out here as well, which is I'll go to lunch after a talk, and yeah, these great conversations come up, and somebody will start, I mean, they start mining you for information, right? Because they've got all these questions left over now that you've finished your talk. And there's this moment that happens to me a lot in that conversation, that that lunch discussion, where... Somebody will ask a question or they'll, they'll make a comment and I'll go, Oh, I totally should have said that in my talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I have this huge negative emotional attachment to it. And I finally, I just flipped the switch in my brain and said, that is not a negative thing. That is a huge win. It doesn't mean I failed in the talk. It means I succeeded in getting this person so engaged that they came to me afterwards and we talked about it and they gave me this power up. And so I got this huge personal direct benefit from having done my best on the talk and they got a benefit from it because they came up with the idea and yeah, okay. I still kind of wish I had said that in my talk, but at the same time, that event happening is representative of having given a good talk that engaged and brought people, got them thinking, and they're still thinking, and now they're having ideas, and that's awesome. Yeah. And incidentally, this is one of the great, the, the greatest justifications I know of for doing the same talk or a similar talk several times. I mean, I, there, there are definitely mixed feelings on that, but one of the the pros is you stir the pot the first time you do it, and then you get all this amazing feedback, and then you get to do a really great talk the next time. True. But yeah, I guess you're right. Well, now that this is recorded, I guess I I have two talks to prepare for. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. We win. (laughs) Yeah, RubyConf call for proposals is open until the end of August, so. True, true. All right. 
College and, you know, Another sort of approach that you can take as a speaker is that you're telling stories for people that maybe aren't interested in telling their own stories. So like mm. if you've had some really interesting discussions about the product process, chances are there there's someone or there are a few someones that you know that you think have some really great insights about that, like at the company that you work at, you know, and they've said some things that really like spark your thinking about it. And you're like, wow, that's really cool. And if that's a person that for whatever reason doesn't get out and do a lot of speaking, you know, somebody needs to be the, I don't know, the journalist or whatever to bring that wisdom to the world. Yeah, that's a really good way to think about it. Because there are people that just aren't interested, you know, you know, they're, they're interested in the work, but they're not interested in talking about it as much or at least mm-hmm. not, you know, in a public context. Yep. What kind of talks do you like? What's the last talk that you went to that was like, wow, that's really cool. Hmm. The right answer was, it was Avdi's talk. (laughs) (laughs) I guess one one that I I really liked um, and I connected with specifically was, oh my God, we had her on the show and I totally am blanking on her name. The woman that we had with uh, Katrina, the talk that she gave about apprenticeships um, was definitely one of my favorite ones Uh, because I felt like it tackled a, it talked about a very different, it had a very different angle that I would have expected for RailsConf where it was about us as a, almost like an economy, like a workforce versus just, you know, people who code and build things on a more individual level. And I really liked the way it was approached. It was very, very holistic and very high level. And also, you know, more of a talk about, you know, the society and, and how we work and how we think about things and how we're going to grow or not grow just more holistically than, than I would have expected out of a tech talk. And so I appreciated just the different angle. I appreciated the different perspective. And obviously, because, you know, I, I was, a you know, that was my, my first rails comp and because I'm more new to this, I appreciated the concerns that it brought up about the pipeline um, and about, you know, bringing new people into this. Yes. That one artisans and apprentices. Yep. I also wanted you to say the DHH keynote at RailsConf. <laughs> I did like the DHH keynote. I felt very poetic after that. And I really like being a software writer. That was nice. Uh, I think the best talk I've, I've seen that I, the most enjoyable talk that immediately comes to mind was Eileen Uchitel spoke about understanding active record under the hood. And it was, she was kind of coming at it from a, you know, I didn't really understand how Active Record worked, and I was doing stuff, and it was taking forever. So I got under the hood of Active Record, and oh my gosh, there's all these horrible things that it was doing. And here are the high-level things that you can do to make it work better. And here's now what happens under the hood is very slick and very fast. And it was a technical talk. She picked a you know a module in in Rails to talk about, but the amount of technical detail spanned the entire ladder from really tight corners about doing bulk inserts and, you know, left outer joins and that kind of stuff all the way up to high level architectural concerns with the way that you write your code when you're up in, you know, high level Ruby and everything's magical. And you're just saying, telling your objects to save themselves. And I really enjoyed that as much as I like to give, you know, brain hacky, soft aspecty talks. Yeah. The best talk I think I've seen recently was a technical one. So there you go. Yeah, I, I really like some of the, I, I, I love both. One of the ones that really comes to mind that made a huge impact on me was at Mountain West JavaScript Conference. Ryan Florence gave a talk and he basically hacked the style sheets for a website. I don't remember which one it was, but he hacked it so that everything was white. You know, none of the images showed up. All of the text was white. All of the background was white and everything. And then he turned on a screen reader 
And he said, okay, this is how a blind person interacts with this website. And so it's like saying random words <laughs> and stuff like that. And you're just sitting there going, yeah, how would anybody reasonably use the site in this way? And so huh. then, and then he talked about some of the details in, you know, how you make a website accessible. And, uh, you know, we had, uh, was it Brian Hogan come talk to us? This was a long time ago that we had him on talking about accessibility. And you don't think about it because I can see the web page and so I know where to click. And, uh, you know, just, just the overwhelming sense of empathy for somebody who has to deal with this all the time, you know, really struck me. And then there was another talk that was also just fun, but technical was, uh, Jameson Dance had a bunch of robotic stuff that he showed off, you know, and it's just fun. It's just whatever. And so I think, I think there are all kinds, but those are the two that kind of come to mind from the last conference that I remember going to and really um, having talks impact me one way or the other. Avi, I think it's your turn. I saw a lot of great talks uh, at the last conference I went to, which was Midwest IO, and it's really hard to pick one. You know, I saw there was a great talk on Haskell. There was uh, like the last two talks both stuck with me, and I guess that could partly be because they were the last two talks, but Jessica Kerr, who we've had on, uh, had a great talk on property-based testing, and then right after that, uh, Hoops and Wah had a fantastic talk on actors in in Windows Azure uh, using the uh, the Project Orleans framework, uh, which was a really interesting take on kind of taking the actor model to another level. And uh, so both of those were technical in nature, and I guess some of the things that stood out about them, I guess, uh, well, there's the fact that they were both from software ecosystems I don't spend a lot of time in. And that's one of the reasons I love these, these polyglot conferences. And I hope that there are more and more of them. You know, the, the property testing is something that goes on a lot more in like Scala. And of course, the Windows Azure stuff was all, you know, different ecosystem than I usually work in. And there was that. And there was also, a, I think, a very strong lessons learned component to those, which is always interesting to not, not just hear about technology from someone, but hear about how they used it and uh, what worked and what didn't, what, what they learned from that. I love those lessons learned talks. Mm -hmm. You're kind of an experience report. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, for a long time, I've sort of ranted about the, uh, the just dry, here's the technology and here's uh, how to use it talks. But if you take that and then you add Here's how we used it to solve a problem. And here are the parts that worked. And here are the parts that didn't work despite the, despite the hype. Those really catch my attention. I love those. Actually, that reminds me, um, there's another one at RailsConf that I really, really liked. And it was the Upworthy engineers talking about how they developed the app, like all the way from the beginning, how it started. Um, I think it started as a Padrino app, actually. And then how they moved it to like a monorails app and then how they split it off. And I love that exactly for that reason, because it told a story, it gave a real life example with a product that, you know, I've heard of and I, and I, I knew about, um, and then talked about all the pros and cons. And it was just a very, it was a very human talk. You know, it was, it was really nice to hear both the experience, but also knowing that even people with a lot of experience still, you know, made a lot of not great decisions and then learned from them. And just seeing that process and how they, you know, worked and developed and grew as a team was really, really fascinating. Awesome. Well, uh, we're kind of getting toward the edge of the time that uh, we have for this. Are there any other things that we should talk about before we get into the picks? I actually had one question that I wanted to ask everybody, uh -huh. and that was, do you guys have a 
pre-speaker checklist of any sort? Any kind of things that you make sure to do before you actually take the mic? That's a good question. Usually what I do is I'll find out what room I'm speaking in, and I will find a time where I can <laughs> go important. into that room before I have to speak. So I'll show up to the conference early, ordering lunch or something, and I'll hook my equipment up to the mm-hmm. the, the speaking equipment. They yes. usually have it in the speaker room, and it's usually the same, but I don't always trust that. So I just go hook it up in the room that I'm in and just make sure that everything works. Yeah. If you don't do this, you'll spend a minute fiddling with screen resolutions, and then when you start up Keynote or PowerPoint, your notes will be on the projector and your talk will be on your laptop. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's a great point. The other thing I do is I go raid the water, whatever it is. So if they have a, a jug with cups or if they have water bottles, sometimes I'll actually just go to the little shop in the convention center and just buy a couple bottles of water and just make sure that they're up there with me because sometimes my throat gets dry or, you know, whatever. And so it's nice to have something there that's available to just clear my throat and give me a second to think. And it is a tactic that I use sometimes if I need a second to think about exactly how I want to frame something. I'll grab the water and just sip it for a second. You know, I was really surprised at how thirsty I get when I speak. I was not ready for that. I can go through like multiple bottles of water in a single talk. <laughs> it's crazy. Yep. yep. And the, the other thing is, is I, I like to practice my talks. I don't always have time, but I like to practice them a few times at least. If I have more lead time, then I'll practice them in the time going up to the conference. And uh, that helps settle my nerves because I've done it a few times and I know I know how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do this weird compass needle thing. It's the only way I can describe it as the metaphor in my mind where the time and place of my talk is due north. And until I give my talk, that's the only thing I can think about. And so I'll look and I'll see, am I speaking before lunch, after lunch, late in the day, earlier in the, in the day? And I'll consider, you know, my audience's probable frame of mind, state of, you know, uh, exhaustion going into the talk. But I'll also give myself time to go back and prepare extra a little bit. And I've actually gone to uh, conference presenters who had me scheduled to speak like at the end of the second day. And I told him up front, I am not going to be able to think about anything except my talk until I have given it. I would love to come to this conference and I will sit in all these sessions and just think about my talk instead of what I'm hearing. Is there any way I can move my talk earlier? <laughs> Could I speak on the first day? And they usually tell me no because I'm not special and, <laughs> and, and that's okay. But one conference did move me. They're like, yeah, you know what? We'll have you speak right before lunch on the first day. And I'm like, oh, thank you. That this, this way I get to, I get to attend the other three quarters of the conference. Yeah. It also helps I will at say- four in the morning. It also helps at four in the morning, the day that you have to speak to remind yourself to go to bed if you're thinking about speaking in five hours. Yep. I will say that that gets easier, um, at least in my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The earlier I go back in my speaking experience, the harder it was to think about anything other than the talk up until the talk. And then I could, you know, I could finally relax after that. Yeah. Um, it's still true that there's, you know, there's a, a lead up period and a coast period for me, you know, that are centered, those periods are centered around giving the talk. But I do find it, you know, the more I do it, the easier I find it to enjoy the rest of the conference before I talk. So it it does get better. It also is easier for me the more I have rehearsed my talk. Like the more comfortable I am with my talk, the less 
I'm fretting about it before I go yeah. into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely make an effort to, to practice it. Usually, you know, obviously I'll be practicing it in the weeks before the talk, but also, you know, like, like the last talk I did, I attended the opening keynote. It was a, it was like, it was an afternoon talk and I, I attended the opening keynote and then I blew off uh, the rest of the morning and I went back to my room and I, I went through the, the whole talk twice. And that, at that point, I was feeling pretty good about it. And then I came back and, and went through the whole afternoon and, you know, went to other people's talks. And I like to practice, but then there's also a point where I think it's important to just cut it off. I feel like practicing right up to the moment can actually do more harm than good. There's a point where I have to just stop and say, okay, now it's just going to sit there in the back of my mind and, and stew for a little while. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to think about it anymore. I yeah. could talk about a lot of little preparatory things. And actually, one thing that I'll sometimes do if I'm feeling particularly nervous or if I'm, if there's like more set up for this talk than usual is I will actually write myself a little, little note on a three by five card with a checklist on it nice. just to make sure that I, I don't freak myself out by missing something, you know, so I'll just put that down on the podium as soon as I get up there. It's like, okay, let's see. Ne- next on my checklist is take off my speaker badge. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. you know, so it doesn't interfere with the, with the mic. Or look stupid on the video. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, next on my checklist is turn off the physical wireless connection button on my laptop. So it is incapable of receiving signals from outside because I find that most of the unexpected interruptions that computers generate, not all, but most of them come from some sort of interaction with the outside world. Dare so, I admit that I've taken advantage of that when someone else I, is giving a talk? I will confess. <laughs> I will confess to sending, you know, at Avdi pooping uh, tweets. Uh, not at Avdi, but at you know, at the speaker, just to see if they've got Twitter on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I usually I try to make sure that like notifications are off and stuff like that. But uh, but it's amazing how many interruptions you can you can avoid just by uh, disabling your computer's connection to all all of the things. But yeah, you know what has been helping me a lot? Like, I do still get nervous sometimes before talks, not as much as I used to, but I, I still do, uh, depending on talk, especially if it's a brand new talk. And I've tried doing stuff like meditating before talks, and it can help, but it's always a little difficult. You know, the more nervous you are, the harder it is to focus on on not focusing. So lately, I've been trying to get involved in a conversation like right before I go up. It seems like the ideal situation is I get engaged in a conversation, like just before it's time to talk, you know, people are milling around, filing into the room, and I get engaged in a conversation right before uh, I'm supposed to go on stage. And so it actually comes as a surprise when somebody comes up to me and says, uh, you need to get up there now. And that's like ideal <laughs> because I'm not freaking out and overthinking about the talk in the moments before I go up on stage. I'm just chatting with someone. Yeah. And so I, I sort of like that happened accidentally a few times. And now I'm I've started to actively seek it out. I've started to like look around for someone and be like, hey, what's going on? Right on. Because if I'm if I'm distracted before the talk, I'll be more relaxed going into it. And you get to meet somebody new. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Let's do us some picks. Saran, do you want to go first? Sure. I have two. Um, one is a book that I finished reading, uh, I think, a couple weeks ago called Think Like a Freak. Um, it is the third book in the Freakonomics series, and it's really, really, really good. And, and I really like it, and I think programmers particularly will appreciate it. Um, so the idea is, you know, the Freakonomics podcast has been around for a while, and they explore, you know, how things work and what the, you know, economics and the problems and solutions are for very kind of random, uh, interesting topics. 
And so their listeners emailed them and said, could you find out, you know, more about this problem I'm having and this problem I'm having? And so instead of doing another Freakonomics book about, you know, finding different correlations between, you know, different topics, instead they wrote a whole book on how you can kind of problem solve the Freakonomics way. Um, and they call it like thinking like a freak. And it's really, really interesting. They have um, stories about this hot dog eating contestant who the average like hot dogs that can be eaten in I don't know how many minutes um, used to be 25 and just by thinking through the problem differently he broke it and and ate like 52 hot dogs or something insane wow. like that yeah and it, it sounds gross but also very awesome and they talk about uh, a lot of just different records that were broken and things that were just thought of a very different way and it really talks about how to break down a problem but for like societal issues and problems that we see so it was really really good and really entertaining um, the second one is a YouTube video that I saw yesterday. It's kind of old, but I think it's awesome, and I just died laughing. And it's called uh, "The Website Is Down: Sales Guy vs. Web Dude." Um, yes. <laughs> oh. Yes. <laughs> now I have to go watch it's, it. Sounds like I'm the only one who hasn't seen it. I sent you, I sent you that email. Uh, no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh my god. It was great. I, I don't really want to say more on it because I just I yes. want you all to watch it. But it's, it's awesome. It's just. Beautiful. Just beautiful. I thought it was real. I really thought it was real. And then it had credits and then it wasn't. But it was it was great. So um, if you're a developer, you will appreciate this. Awesome. Avdi, what are your picks? You know, I thought I had more picks this week. But you know what? I'm just going to pick some random stuff. My boots are... I don't think I've picked these before. Um, I, I finally got myself a pair of Doc Martens. I've had a lot of combat boots over the years. But uh, for some reason, I never got a pair of Docs. And uh, I have to say, I've been very, very pleased with them. They are startlingly comfortable for boots. I've actually, they're actually my preferred boots for like walking around town when I go to conferences. And, uh, they're also pretty decent to stand in, like when I'm at my standing desk. So, um, yeah, they're not kidding about the, like the air sole or whatever it is on these things. They're, they're nice, uh, comfortable boots. You know, I haven't done a beer pick for a while. You know what's a good beer? Burton Baton by, uh, Dogfish Head Brewing Company. Uh, that one, that one probably has fairly decent distribution. So a lot of people that hear this might be able to find it. Uh, it's a, an oak-aged imperial IPA, and it's quite good. And I think that'll do it for now. I don't feel like doing any te- any tech picks. All right, David, what are your picks? Oh, gosh. I got a bunch, but I'll just do two or three. I think the first one, Keep Ruby Weird. Their CFP closes. Uh, if you're listening to this on the day we release it, their CFP closes tomorrow. So their CFP closes on July 31st. They have already sold out their first round of tickets. They are going to sell another round. So there's still a chance you can get to this conference. But if you want to go to Austin and talk about the weirdest thing you've done in Ruby, the safest way to ensure that you can go is to get your talk accepted. So given that that's what we've been talking about today, uh, submit a proposal to Keep Ruby Weird. They're at Keep Ruby Weird on Twitter and KeepRubyWeird.com, I think. Uh, on the internets. Uh, my other uh, pick is, uh, I'll do two really quick, uh, one frivolous and one kind of awesome. Simon Tatham's Puzzle Collection. This is available on pretty much all platforms. I'll put a link in the show notes, but uh, you can search for just Simon Tatham, T-A-T-H-A-M, in the App Store uh, or in Google Play Market. And it'll come up. It's on iPad. It's on iPhone, uh, et cetera. And it's just like 34 different puzzle games that you can play. And some of them I've never seen anywhere else. My favorites are Galaxies and Undead, which are galaxies or you're just trying to draw shapes 
that are rotationally symmetric on like a checkerboard. And the game just tells you where the centers are and you have to use up all the space. And undead is like the old lasers puzzle where you would, you, you get numbers telling you, you know, the beam goes in here and it comes out here. Well, they give you, if you look into the box here, your vision will bounce off of some mirrors. It will come out here and you see this many monsters and you have to follow the rule of if you look right at a vampire, you can see him. But if you look at him in a mirror, you can't. So the number changes. If you look right at a ghost, you can't see it. But if you look at it through a mirror, you can. And so it's, it's kind of a fun little, and, there, and there's 35 other games in the set, everything from Minesweeper up to like Sudoku and that sort of thing. And then a, a useful, really cool thing. IP Viking is a honeypot software that the uh, company called Norse has spread this out into every major internet exchange around the world, pretty much except for inside China, I think. And what happens is, is when people launch an attack and they start port scanning servers, they'll, you know, hit Comcast servers or GoDaddy servers or whatever, but they'll also end up hitting one of these honeypot servers and IP Viking logs it. And so if you get on the internet and go to map.ipviking.com, you can see a real-time animated map of malware and DDoS attacks going on on the internet right now. It's like DEF CON 5 for the internet in live real-time. It's really, really cool. All right. I've got a couple of picks. The first one is kind of a G-Wiz pick. I don't have one of these for the uh, to disclaim to the people out there who don't like me picking things that I haven't tried. It looks cool, and I'm too broke to buy one. It's a 105-inch Samsung UHD TV. It'll be available for pre-order soon. It's a 105-inch TV. costs $120,000. So 